As Christians, there's nothing more vital than celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This Easter, listen in as Pastor Chris Chadwick presents messages for Easter 2023. Now, in our text, we see Mark chapter 11, we see the greatest coronation ever where Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is making his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Now, by the crowds, he is not, and by the religious elite and the political authority, he is not recognized as a monarch. There's no pomp as he comes into Jerusalem. There's no escorts. There's no bands playing. There's not even a junior high school band playing. There's nobody waving any flags. There's, there's no one holding up any signs. It's Jesus coming in. And in truth, it's a rather bittersweet time because it's the last time that he will enter into Jerusalem this way, in a public way. He'll go back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem a few times. This day, if we were to chronologize the day, this day, Mark chapter 11, is one week before his arrest. Seven days. And Jesus is going into the city in a public way for the last time. If the Bible crescendos on the cross of Calvary or the resurrection would probably be a better way of saying that. If the Bible crescendos on the resurrection, then this is what would be called the buildup. This would be where the music changes from maybe a, a melody or melodic and it becomes more powerful and, and a little bit louder and, and you see something is coming and, and stagers are sitting, set in motion for a much bigger event to happen because something major is afoot. As we come to our text, we understand a couple of things about the Bible. Somebody said in real estate, the three most important things about real estate are location, location, location. Somebody else said about the Bible, the three most important things about the Bible are context, context, context. What is the passage saying around the passage that we're studying? And in an effort to help establish the context and to give us a little bit of background and a little bit of insight, look over at Mark chapter 10, verse number 32. Mark chapter 10, verse number 32. The Bible says here, and I'm reading out of the King James Version, and they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid, so the disciples in the crowd, just to give you a, tech, a context, there's a large crowd and the disciples are following Jesus and, and they're going from Jericho to Jerusalem, about a, a 15 to 17 mile walk, depending on, on that day and the route of that day, but, but roughly about that length. And there's a large crowd following him. And you notice in verse number 32 that Jesus goes before them. Jesus is not being pulled along. He's not being forced to go. He's actually leading from the front. He's, he's out in front of the crowd. He went before them and they were amazed. That word amazed means they were afflicted with wonder. They were alarmed. It's not really a positive word. They were amazed in a, in a more fearful or a negative sense. They were amazed as they followed and they were afraid or they were apprehensive about the situation and the event. 
And he took the 12, the disciples, and he began to tell them what things should happen. So this group has been, is following Jesus and, and, and a large crowd, and they're intermixed uh, with the crowd. And Jesus pulls the disciples out. And as they're making their way to Bethany, uh, Bethany and Bethphage, uh, Mark 11, verse number 1, Jesus pulls the disciples and he begins to teach them privately a couple of things. And one of the things he tells them in verse number 33, behold, or pay attention, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man, Jesus speaking of himself, I'll try to read it in the first person, I shall be delivered to the chief priest and to the scribes and they're gonna condemn me to death and they're gonna deliver me to the Gentiles. Now they understood that that meant crucifixion. This is not the first time Jesus taught them this. This is not the second or the third time. In recorded scripture, he's done this multiple times, but they keep forgetting, just like I would. And so they're gonna deliver me to the Gentiles and they're gonna mock me, verse 34, and they're gonna scourge me and they're gonna spit upon me and they're gonna kill me and the third day I'm gonna rise again. Now, imagine with me if you're a disciple. You've been with Jesus. I mean, he's telling you his public ministry is done. You've been going throughout all of the region of Galilee, Capernaum. If you go to Israel today, we're going to go, I think in a couple of years, we were supposed to go and then COVID happened, so we didn't travel, but, but we're going to go in a couple of years. Debbie and I are going next year to make sure that everything's set and ready to go, and, and then we'll go. But if you go there today, you'll go to Galilee. There's like Tiberias that's on the, on the bank of the, the dead or, or, or the Sea of Galilee. You'll be in that region. They've ministered through that whole area. They've ministered through that whole part of the world. He's, he's preached, Jesus has preached throughout the nation of Israel. He, he's approaching Jerusalem and he tells the disciples, guys, as we come in, this is it. I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I get there, they're gonna, they're gonna arrest me. The chief priest and the scribes, they're going to arrest me and I'm going to be crucified. But before they crucify me, verse 33, they're going to mock me. They're going to mock the very son of God. They're going to ridicule the very son of God. They're going to, they're going to scourge me. That means to beat with a cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails was an instrument of torture. It was a, a wooden rod or a leather rod, depending, and it had nine strips of leather coming off of it. And at the end of it, different uh, sharp objects would be tied in, maybe part of pottery or a rock or uh, iron nail or a rusty nail or something like that. Um, and it was given to, the, there were Roman soldiers that their whole, their whole job, their whole rate, their whole MOS was to learn how to inflict as much punishment on a person without killing them. And so they would go to school on how to do this, literally. And the, the scourgers, if they were good, and they were good by the time they got to the level that Jesus would face, could rip the flesh open and yet save his life. And Josephus, who was the historian and the governor of Galilee, just following Jesus' time, says that often a person's very intestines would be hanging outside of them. They're going to scourge me, guys. They're going to do this to me. They're going to mock me. They're going to, they're going to put me on a cross. And the very Son of God is going to hang in front of the men of the world and women of the world naked. 
on display, spit upon, and ridiculed. And then they're going to put me in a tomb. And the third day, I'm going to rise again. Now, you've been so respectful to listen. But notice the disciples' response. Jesus tells them this while they're walking, and on the road, they're still walking. Because the context hasn't changed. We could look at Matthew 21, Luke 19, we could see this. But I like Mark's account this year. We've done the others over the years. And James and John, verse 35, the sons of Zebedee, come to him saying, Master, now, now remember, Jesus just says everything I just said. I'm saying what he said. Or I said what he said. I illustrate what he said. And they come to him and they say, Master, verse number 35, we want you to do what we ask you to do. Could there be anything more self-serving? If you're a parent, you get this. Like you sit your kids down and you tell them something super important and you bear your heart to your kids. And, and at the end of it, you're like, do you have any questions? And they say, can we go to McDonald's? <sighs> like, how about if I just throw you to McDonald's? Jesus gets done telling them this and they say what? Master, we want you to do something that we want you to do. Do this for us. Do whatever we desire. Isn't that often the mark of modern day Christianity? I don't mind following you, Jesus, if you do what I want you to do. And if you don't do what I want you to do, you're not a good God. And, and, and that's what they say. And Jesus says, okay, what, would it, what, what should I do for you? And I'm not trying to be unkind to James and John. I find myself doing the exact same thing. They say, grant unto us that one may sit on the left hand and one on the right hand. I'm not mocking them. I'm, I'm sad because I find myself in the exact same condition. Lord, I don't mind serving you. I don't mind going on proclaim. I don't mind reading your word. I don't mind preaching the gospel. I don't mind exhausting myself all over the world to help missionaries. I don't mind giving a lot. Oh, but by the way, would you do this for me? I mean, I'm doing all these things for you. You do this for me. It's a quid pro quo. If I give you my time, you give me this. If I give you my money, you give me this. Oh, I find myself. And that's the disciples. They finish this, just to bring it into context. They are walking and they finish this interaction and Jesus tells James and John, what you're asking for is not mine to give, but the Father which is in heaven. And, and he'll make that determination. And as they're still walking, they came to Jericho and they, they go past Jericho and there's a great number that are following them and they walk by this guy He's a beggar on the side of the road. His name's Bartimaeus. And as they're walking by, Bartimaeus starts crying out for Jesus. And he starts crying out for Jesus. And he starts crying out for Jesus. And he's, and he's begging uh, for somebody to introduce him to Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, have mercy on me. And people are telling him to be quiet. And Jesus, on the road to his death, what a picture of empathy. What a picture of care. What a picture of service. Jesus is on his way uh, to, to the cross, if you you will. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be abused. He, he, and he's ultimately going to die for the sin of mankind. And on the way to his darkest hour, there's a man pleading with him for healing. There's a man pleading with him for help. And, and everybody's telling the guy to be quiet. And Jesus stops the crowd and says, bring him to me. 
He says, what do you want me to do? He says, give me sight. And he looked at him and he gives him sight. He immediately heals him and he heals him for the duration of his life. And the man has sight and the man, Bartimaeus, becomes a follower of Christ. And then they come to Bethany and Bethphage. Now, Bethany and Bethphage are... Bethany is a pretty well-known big village two miles from Jerusalem. Bethphage is a, is a small little add-on that is separated from a piece of land, maybe like a quarter of an acre or a half acre. It's not very big. And they're separated by this little plot of land. And from the context, Jesus is in Bethany and he says to two of his disciples, he says, hey, I want you to go to Bethphage in verse number one and I want you to find a, 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 a colt over there that's never been ridden on and I want you to bring that to me, verse number two. Go your way into the village over against you and as soon as you have entered into it, you shall find the colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. I want you to notice first things first this morning that Jesus is the master of creation. Jesus is the master of creation. I, 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 I am awed by the simplicity of the scripture and I think sometimes we, we run past it far too quickly that Jesus is the master of creation is even seen as he goes toward his death. The animals are submitted to Christ. Now listen, I don't claim to be a donkey whisperer. That's what a colt is. Matter of fact, the only things I know about donkeys, I learned the first time when I was nine years old in Tijuana, I have a picture. It's a zonkey. It's a Tijuana donkey that's been painted to look like a zebra. How many of you ever seen a zonkey? How many of you know, know those things? That's, as a nine-year-old boy, I sat on top. I don't know if, if it was Reuben here or it was some other donkey uh, or zonkey, but I sat on top of it and they took my picture and to a kid from Washington State where the most next Mexican thing I had ever seen was El Torito. I thought fried ice cream was something every Mexican kid grew up eating. That was the coolest thing. That was my donkey. I talked for years about the Mexican zebras, the zonkeys. I mean, I know that. And then a few years ago, Debbie and I were in Petra, Jordan, and we rode some donkeys with my parents. And, and we're going through Petra, one of the seven wonders of the world, beautiful place. And uh, um, donkey, they were great to ride. They were well-trained and they got paid well for, for uh, giving us a ride. My parents, they, my parents did not have the time of their life. Life on the donkey, and and my donkey's name was Madonna. The I don't they just named her that, and I kept trying to beat Debbie. Her donkey was named Michael Jackson, and so I just kept trying to beat it. And um, <laughs> I appreciate those of you that got the joke. Our staff is like, look that one up later. It was it was a real thrill of mine to beat it too. Um, <laughs> So, um, 
we, uh, that, that's my donkey life, my donkey experience. And, and I'll just be honest with you, the donkeys that I rode were super easy, or the donkey that I rode was super easy to ride, and she really liked me. And uh, um, she really liked me when I paid her, her owner, too, that he really liked me. And we just had a time doing that. So I didn't know much about donkeys. And honestly, when I read this, I thought, oh, uh, a donkey that's never been ridden on, a colt that's never been ridden on, probably just easy. Anybody could jump on it. But I, be, I looked, and this is what I found is that donkeys like horses have to be trained. If you don't think so, go out to East County, find somebody that has a donkey that no one's ever sat on, record yourself, jump on it. I promise you, you'll be an internet sensation as you go flying over the fence. And donkeys I hear are a little bit weird according to what I've studied. And, and according to what I've studied is that they'll buck you off and then they'll bite you because they're mad at you for jumping on them. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm not gonna find out. But Jesus tells two disciples, I want you to go get the animal and I want you to bring him to me. And they throw their coats on a donkey that had never been ridden before. That is not there by accident. And I'm not making more of it than I should to say that even as he approached crucifixion, Jesus Christ is still the master of the universe. The animals are still submitted to him. I think it's important. I want to deal with this just for a second that as the master of creation, we understand something. That the world in which we live is a sin-cursed world, and we would agree with that, but it affects more than just humanity. Humanity. We'll study this in depth in a couple of weeks as we get into our series on assurance in Romans after Easter. But Romans chapter 8, verse number 18, the apostle Paul says, I reckon or I consider that the suffering of this present time the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The creature here is talking about animals. For the creature was made subject to vanity. We are vanity. Not willingly. Mankind willingly sinned. But the creature did not willingly sin, it was forced upon him, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself, or animals themselves, also shall be delivered from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. All creation is groaning and travailing. You know how you wake up and you feel old and rickety and, and the older you get, you just, you wake up cranky because stuff's not working like it should. And then there's a spiritual groaning. Lord, how long till you return? How much longer do I have to live in a sin-cursed world? How much longer does your sin have to affect me and, and our people uh, and, and our friends and our family and the people of San Diego and the people of California? How much longer can, can sin reign? We, we groan and travail. Well, creation groaneth and travaileth. Not only they, not only the creation, but we Verse number 23, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption or the return of Christ, to wit, the redemption of our body. One commentator said this, the whole created world, apart from human beings, both animate and inanimate, both subhuman and human, 
await the return of the Lord. J.P. Phillips' picturesque translation of this verse or his commentary on this verse said the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the Son of God coming into their own. The creation of this world cannot wait for Jesus to return. I've got a beautiful little dog. Her name's Molly Joy. and She's awesome. She's never sinned, but she groans and awaits the return of the Lord. I love it. Somebody said, Pastor, you think dogs will be in heaven? I don't know. You'll hear about that in, in, when we say that in, in Romans chapter 8. I can guarantee you this. No cats are in heaven. <laughs> Hell will be filled with cats. The Bible says where the crying doesn't die. You know there's going to be cats sitting outside the door of heaven waiting to get in. And they never can get in. Why? Because they hate Jesus. I'm kidding. If you love cats, we'll pray for you. But don't invite us over. I'm teasing. Verse number three. And if any man say unto you, why do you this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him and straightway he will send him. We see in our text this morning that animals are submitted to Christ. We see that the owner was submitted to Christ. The master had need of his donkey. He said, hey, guys, what are you doing with my donkey? They said, the master has need of him. Okay, you can have him. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 8, Paul says, I speak not by commandment, but by the occasion of the forwardness of others, to, when he talks about giving, to prove the sincerity of your love. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. I give my taxes. I don't love to do that. But I love my wife, and so I give to her. I, I love the Lord, so I give to the church, his church, his bride. You can, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And, and just before you think like, oh, well, it's just a donkey, remember the parallels of the day that in that day, a donkey was a, a tool to be used. A donkey was a, a means of transportation to be used. And somebody just comes and takes it. It's very important to those folks. And somebody just comes and takes it and says, hey, what? people say, hey, what are you doing? Oh, the master has need of it. Oh, oh go, okay, go ahead. You do what you want to with it. Did they ever get it back? I don't know. They at least got it back and then some because given it shall be given unto you, good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over shall mean given to your bosom. You can't outgive the Lord and this owner gave and the Lord gave it back to him in some form or fashion. Not only do we see in the master's authority over the universe of the master's authority over creation, but we see also that the disciples were submitted. Jesus asked these guys to do something strange. Imagine being one of these guys. They get to Bethany and Jesus says, hey guys, over in Bethphage, you'll see, when you go into the city, you'll see this open spot. You'll see a, a colt that is tied. You'll see a donkey that is tied there that no one's ever ridden on. It's a young donkey. I want you to go and get that and bring that donkey to me. And, and I could just see the, the disciples going, you want me to bring a donkey to you? That, that, it, it, does the owner know? No, if anybody says anything to you, just tell them the master has need of him. And I can see James and John who were just asking to be on the left and right hand of the throne of God. I can see 
Jesus commanding or, or commissioning James and John to do, to do that. And they're walking over there like kicking the dirt going, are you serious? We have to do this? We're not donkey gatherers. That's not what we do. That's not who we are. But the, they, they went and they went with a, a spirit of submission that let the Lord know, okay, you're not only the master of the animals and you're not only the master of the owner of the donkey, but you're my master too. Because the master of creation gets to be master in my life. Not just in somebody else's life. Not just in something else's life. He gets to be the controller and the ruler of my life. And when we say, Jesus, no, or, or, or Jesus, uh, maybe, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, when he's the master, he gets to control. Whenever you say yes to Jesus, you're saying no to someone or something else. And whenever you say no to Jesus, you're saying yes to someone or something else. You say yes to Jesus, you're saying no to your personal fears. Jesus, you want me to witness to them? Okay, right on. I'll do it. Jesus, you want me to give that? I'll do it. You're saying no to your own fears. You're saying no to your own embarrassment. You're saying no to your own agenda. You're saying no to your own ideals because he is your master. Well, I know what, here's what we often say. I know what the Lord wants me to do. I'm just not ready to do that. That is not a testimony of your spirituality. That's a picture of your rebellion. And mine too. Well, I know what the Lord wants. I know what he desires in my life, but I like partying too much. I like drinking too much. I like hanging out. I just want to do my own thing. I, 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 I want to go my own way. I, I, wanna, I, I, I mean, I, I love Jesus. I'm thankful for him but he's asking me to do something that I'm uncomfortable with. Hey, get this through your mind. Jesus always asks you to do things you're uncomfortable with because that's the only place grace can be found. That's the only place grace can be found. The supernatural enabling of God that brings about Christ-like change, that's what grace is, can only be found when you're uncomfortable. It's not really hard for any of us to go, you know what, I really like French toast with lots of syrup. Well, you might not like French toast, but you get the illustration. No, he's like, oh, I really have to work hard to do that. But to say yes to that is to say no to something else. If you want to get in, become healthy, you're going to say no to donuts and yes to barbells. Or walking. Or jazzercise. Or Zumba. Or cycling which are all fine. But if you're going to say, you say no to one thing, you're going to say yes to another. And yes to one thing is no to another. You can't do both. And these folks, these disciples said, Jesus, you're the master of my life. I'm going to say yes to you and no to me. Yes to you and no to my own fear. Yes to you and no to my own embarrassment. Yes to you and no to my, my own agenda. And, and when he's the master, the master of your life, you're like, Whatever you ask me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. You want me to love my wife better because I stink at it? Okay. You want me to love my husband better? 
Okay. You want me to stop sleeping around? Okay. You're the master. You want me to stop viewing porn? Okay. You want me to start tithing? Okay. You want me to tell others about you and go on proclaim? Okay. Whatever it is. Why? Because he's the master. You can't divorce the response of the disciples from the context of the passage. Remember, they just heard he's going to be beaten and die. From a human perspective, they're serving a losing king. Their rabbi's toast, not to be sacrilegious, but he's not going to win and they didn't understand the resurrection and neither would have we. And yet they say, because you're the master, I'm willing to do it. Not only do we see Jesus as the master uh, of creation, he is also the model of meekness. Meekness is strength under control. It's not weakness, it's strength under control. Matter of fact, it's normally displayed by people who have a lot of strength, power, and authority, and yet they live in a state of submission to Christ. Sometimes folks will look at someone in a leadership position who they don't agree maybe with some of the decisions that they make, and we have the freedom to disagree on some of those things, but they will often accuse that person of being proud because they are in authority. They are in authority. As a matter of fact, at this time in history, the most challenging place to be is in authority and especially spiritual and political authority. Being the pastor of a church or maybe a political leader because any decision that is made, people will accuse you of being self-serving and proud. If you don't think so, go back and read some of the comments about pastors during COVID. I mean, you just get accused of, of everything because someone doesn't like your decision. And we all could agree that there are some really proud leaders, both politically and spiritually. We wouldn't argue that point. But simply being in a position of God-given leadership does not mean that you lack meekness. Jesus is the picture of meekness. We're called to be meek. I would just say this. Some of the most proud and arrogant, which are the only two antonyms or opposite words of meekness that I could find after an in-depth study, trying to find a, a, a parallel opposite word, Pride and arrogance in this way or in this context is often seen of people who might not be in positions of authority, but who fold their arms, stiffen their back, and say, I don't care what Jesus says, I'm doing my own thing. I'm not going to do what he says. I'm not going to love my wife. I'm not going to share my faith. I'm not going uh, to be a, a follower of Christ. I, I like porn too much. I like sleeping around too much. I'm doing my own thing, and I don't care what anyone says. That's the exact opposite of meekness. Meekness, in a spiritual sense, says, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm 100% submitted to you and I remove my stubbornness and I yield to you. Because that 
is what you do with the master of creation. Well, Jesus being the model of meekness, which is pictured so masterfully here as he rides a donkey. He rides a donkey. You say, what's the big deal? Well, he's going into a parade and he's riding a donkey. In that day, the donkey was a picture of peace. The donkey is what Mary rode into Bethlehem and what Mary rode, Jesus' earthly mother, from, from Bethlehem to Egypt. It was, a, it was not a, a donkey is not a, an animal to be feared. If you're going to, to be a warrior and, a, and an earthly king in Christ's day, then you're going to ride in on a horse or maybe a camel. You might even have some people carry you. you we've all seen the, the pictures of somebody sitting in a chair and maybe eight men holding beams between themselves and they carry someone in during the coronation. No, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus, who's the creator of the world. Listen, Jesus could have commanded elephants and lions to carry him in and yet he didn't do any of that he simply went in on the back of a donkey proving his own meekness a few days later this would be illustrated in a greater way as Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane he's had the last supper Barabbas has left to betray Christ he knows in just a few short moments that the Roman guard will be with Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, and they will be, he will be arrested. And his soon coming crucifixion is imminent. And as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, overlooking the eastern gate of Jerusalem, he prays. And he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, what's the cup? The cup of suffering? Oh, that suffering would not be enjoyable. No doubt. But I would submit to you that the prayer that Jesus is praying is not for the physical suffering to be removed, but the spiritual pain and suffering that he would go through to be removed. You see, because for the first time in, in eternity, Jesus and God the Father are going to be separated, and Jesus knows this. Jesus is going to be separated from God for the first time in all eternity because Jesus Christ, the Bible says, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And it literally means that all the sin of all the world for all time would be put on the back of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross of Calvary. You say, well, that's kind of metaphorical. No, 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 The Bible doesn't say it's metaphorical. When the Bible talks about metaphor, you understand it's a metaphor. Literally, the entire spiritual weight of all mankind for all time would be laid on the back of Jesus Christ. So your porn addiction was put on the back of Jesus. Your bitterness towards a family member, put on the back of Jesus. Our anger, put on the back of Jesus. Your gambling addiction, put on the back of Jesus. 
We're talking about Jesus, who's the son of God, a God who cannot look on sin. That means to look, to gaze on it with fondness. Somebody said one time, God looks at sin. That's a child and sophomoric view. God never looks on sin with fondness. He always turns his back in disgust. But it's not just your sin. Think of the worst sinner you know. Let me think of Jeffrey Dahmer. His sin was placed on the back of Jesus Christ. Sex traffickers, drug traffickers, human traffickers that are polluting our world and our political leaders are just allowing it to happen. The sins of both parties placed on the back of Jesus Christ. The atrocities to minority people groups in China and Iran the slave labor, labor camps, the people who lead that place on the back of Jesus Christ. Hitler's sin placed on the back of Jesus Christ. Mao Zedong's sin killing over 20 million Chinese, not including the ones that he intentionally starved to death, over 20 million Chinese killed. His sin placed on the back of Jesus Christ. Genghis Khan, his sin placed on the back of Jesus Christ. The sins of the Assyrians in the Old Testament, the most violent people in the Old Testament we believe, placed on the back of Jesus Christ. There's two things about that. Number one, that's why it would take an all-powerful God to die for the sin of mankind. Because there's not a man on this planet who could ever carry the weight of the sin of mankind. Number one. Number two... Jesus hated that concept. He knew no sin. Think about that. Like he didn't know what it was like to get angry and sinful at the drop of a hat. He didn't know what impatience was like from a first person perspective. He knew knew none of that. And yet... He was going to become the very personification of that. He became sin for you. You see, because in the Old Testament, a cow would be sacrificed, a heifer would be sacrificed. And it was a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ washing away your sin. But Jesus wasn't a picture. Jesus was a reality. The Bible says uh, uh, the blood of bulls and goats cannot wash away our sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ, having, I'm not quoting it exactly, having died once for the sin of mankind, washed away our sins, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Some people erroneously teach that when Jesus died, he had to go to hell to suffer for the sins of mankind. Oh, dear friend, he did not need to go to hell to die for the, to suffer for the sin of mankind. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. 
He did that for you. No, no, he did that for you. He bled for you because he's meek. See, that's why if you're here today and you don't know for sure that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven, you need to understand that Jesus is not some ogre up in heaven trying to force you to himself, but he is a loving God trying to pull you to himself. That's why there's this prodding in your heart that says, I should accept Christ today. I should repent and accept Christ today. I should repent and accept Christ today. I should trust Jesus. There's something that is pulling you. That's God trying to bring you to himself. But you, listen to me, you, you, just like I, you have to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. And you have to be humble enough to do it today. Because if you're here and you die without Christ, then dear friend, in humility I tell you, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. And the whole Easter account, we like to call it the resurrection story, the whole resurrection story is all about you and I being able to have a relationship with God and heaven as our home because we repent of our sin and trust Jesus alone as our Savior. Not Jesus in confession, not Jesus in last rites, not Jesus in a marriage sanctioned by the church, not Jesus in baptism, not Jesus in a mission trip, not Jesus in incense in a temple, Jesus and only Jesus can save your soul. Jesus said it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, here's, those are all definite articles and we could say it this way, for clarity uh, and context. I am the only way, I am the only truth, I am the only life, no man comes to the Father but by me. There is no other means of salvation than through the person of Jesus Christ, realizing that you're a sinner, realizing that your sin separates you from God and placing your faith and trust in him alone. Father, bless our time in the word today. Thank you for listening. Find more messages every week at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, join us for a service. We meet at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 p.m.